Welcome back to another enlightening episode of WTF ABA Cares Podcast. I'm your host, Holly Beth, and today we're embarking on a profound exploration of balance. Balance in how we both perceive things to protect our mental health, and also how do we ensure our physical safety. Our guest today, Dr. Polly Gavani, brings a wealth of experience and insights into navigating the challenges of perception, mental well-being, and physical safety, all while maintaining a healthy ABA culture. So welcome, Dr. Polly, to the WTF ABA Cares podcast. I'm excited to dive in. Well, thanks so very much. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Man, it was touch and go for me for a couple of days. I, I do kettlebell. I started a kettlebell workout like three months ago, and I love it. It's like fixed so many ailments that I've had from, you know, I have a 30 years in the fight game, so that's not great for your body. And uh, apparently, I, I don't know if I would just overdid it or I picked it up wrong, but, but what's today? Today's Wednesday. Monday, I went to do my kettlebell workout before I went to the boxing gym, which is what I normally do. Mm-hmm. And uh, man, it, I could barely move. I couldn't even get out of bed Monday, late Monday night, early Tuesday morning. So I'm glad I can even be here and sit here. And, uh, you know, I've been doing therapy and putting the little tens unit on it and doing all this stuff. So anyways, I'm just happy to be here. <laughs> no, you know, I got to tell you, my my son, who's just getting his RBT license i'm super proud of him very but cool. he also yeah but he just started mma and so i was he's new to to aba he's new to mma and i was like let me just like introduce you to this guy polly who's like amazing he's got you know the skills in both yada yada but he's been coming home and so you know i cannot imagine after so long how your body's you know continuing to do it i've seen pictures man he's all pink when he's done it's, oh, yeah. it's amazing. Yeah, it's good. I mean, I, you know, listen, I, I, fighting is at the root of my success. I came from a, a history where I was bullied. I was grew up in a very rough neighborhood and, you know, I had low self-esteem for whatever reason. I had loving parents. That, that was not the issue there. I don't, who knows what happened when I was very young, but I do remember just getting bullied and being just a super nice kid that was just always tried to be sweet to everybody and kind and caring but it seems like you know in, in those neighborhoods that 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 is seen as a, as a sign of weakness and and so it led me to boxing and then eventually mixed martial arts but i i kind of see life as a fight now and it really helps me push through obviously not everything is physical most things are not physical 99.9999 percent of things are not physical but it's helped me to push through things so i'm hoping that's what happens for your son that uh, he gets that confidence and that mindset to, you know, because there's there's lots of struggles in life. So, yeah, yeah, I've definitely seen it. And, you know, he's had his fair share of challenges, too. And I appreciate you saying that it's it's interesting because even though it's physical. When you accomplish something, I think it does just naturally boost your confidence that you got through something. How how. How did it kind of affect you? Like, how did you see it manifest in you? Like you said that it's, it's kind of affected who you are today. So many, in so many ways, I mean, just so many ways I think about it is like really deep, obviously as a behaviorist, we can figure out like why I got into it. You know, I was feeling bad at myself and this was a powerful reinforcer for me. The first time I fought somebody and I got out of the ring and I beat the guy, there was nothing personal, you know, against the guy, but I was just in a really bad time in my life. And I seem to need it. Obviously, you have most people, you know, you either coming from high poverty or you got something wrong with you in some way. And I had something wrong with me in some way. And so uh, 
I, what I, I saw was that like back then I couldn't look people in the eye and, uh, you know, getting out of that ring that first time and having the adulation. And it seems like people in our world seem to love the respect, the lover and the fighter and uh, being a nice guy just wasn't enough. And it's, I'm still a nice guy, you know, but now I can look people in the eye. I can feel confident if somebody's pushing back, I don't feel like I'm going to, you know, I know I'm v very clear on what my values in life are and uh, I will not, I hate bullying. I can't stand it. I hate to see other people bullied, which I've always stuck up for people. Even when I was getting beat up, I would actually stick up to my bullies when they were bullying a friend of mine. But, then, but I, I just won't tolerate that. And I won't allow myself to be bullied. And of course I don't go, you know, just jump on people. I always try to shape it. You know, I always try to talk to people and be a role model and, you know, find out what's going on, but I won't tolerate it. And I think there's something about whatever my behavior is that people sense it. And I don't know what those micro behaviors are that I engage in. If it's my tone of voice, if it's being assertive, but I've learned not to be aggressive. I've learned not to be passive. I've learned to be assertive in alignment with my own values, because some people think that, you know, they're, they're right about everything. And I know I'm not right about everything. I just always want to hear what people have to say, but I, I, I do feel very clear on what my values are. I feel like I'm a good person. And of course, it's not always about intent. It's about impact. But I also feel like I'm always intentionally searching for the impact of my behavior on others. And so, uh, you know, I, 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 I know that I'm always learning and, and evolving. So I think the fight side of it really helped me to push through any of these situations, you know, from, you know, loss of people, from, you know, from people pushing back on me to, you know, being upset and about bad jobs and pushing through all that stuff. I almost see it now. Like, are, do you watch any Marvel or DC, you know, uh, movies at all? Oh, I'm sitting in my flasher. And let me just tell you, I am a, I'm definitely a DC fan, but I do recognize their movies are not as good, but yeah. Oh, well, that's totally, okay. Totally. I, don't, <laughs> I, I enjoy, you know, but you, so, you know, Doomsday from yeah. the Batman Superman. So I almost like see myself as that. And I can tell you that anything significant that I've that I've accomplished in my life and I've, I've done a couple of things has come out of some of the worst times of my life and so I see myself and this this vision of myself evolved over time and that is the more hits I take the more stuff I have to deal with the most you know the emotional baggage I have to go through whatever it is because it's there's always something it's like doomsday when he was taking a, a beating he absorbs that energy and uh, makes them stronger. And that's how I see myself. I, of course, I don't want to be beat. I don't want to deal with all that stuff, but I know that whatever happens, and I know I took this from fighting, whatever happens, I'm going to walk away from this eventually better than I was because I'm going to reevaluate. I'm going to equip myself with the, the tools that I need to be more successful next time under similar conditions. And I'm just going to walk away a better version of myself. And so that is the, how, what keeps me kind of going. And I believe it to be true based on my history. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I, Polly, when I saw you at, at ABAI, you walked in when I happened to be checking in and I just said, hi to you. We haven't met in person or anything. And you immediately gave me a hug and, and showed up and you didn't know what I went through that day and, or, or anything like that, but I, I needed it and just you know, my daughter was like, who, who is that? You know, how do you know him? And just told him a little bit about who you were. And I didn't know all of, 
all of this. And so I appreciate you being vulnerable with me. It's deeply personal. You know, both both my kids have been impacted and myself, you know, by bullying as well. I think a lot of us have probably at, at some point or another, unfortunately, met a bully or been just, like you said, just like rolling with the punches and, and keep getting hit. And so the doomsday imagery is is pretty powerful. And yeah, that's going to stick with me. And I, I appreciate you sharing it. I have a question. So I'm, I'm thinking about the values that you mentioned, right? And making mm-hmm. sure that you, that you're really clear on your impact. You're really clear on your, on your values. But sometimes when you're getting hit, how do you stay focused on that and still clear on, on who you are in the moment? Yeah, that's a really good question. And sometimes it's hard. Sometimes you lose yourself. So I, I really live and think in the act matrix. I love the act matrix so much. Are you familiar with the, the act matrix? I, I am. I do. And like, it's a, it's a well-known thing in this house to say, are you going towards or are you going away? Like, what is it that we're trying to accomplish here? Yeah. Um, well, yeah. that's, I love it. I've, I've, I've write, I've written a, articles about it in two of my books. I, I had the pleasure of co-authoring a, a non-academic article with Kevin Polk, the, the main developer of it. And uh, it's just really wonderful to me. It's the, the perfect preferences, self-preference assessment, a perfect, the, you know, functional, self-functional behavior assessment, perfect, you know, behavior, self-behavior intervention plan. And also instead of social validity, it's like self-validity where you're making sure that your behavior is in alignment with your values. So, you know, when people tend to be a poor observer of their behavior, a poor observer of the impact of their behavior on the environment, and a poor observer of the impact of the environment on their behavior. And of course, that includes the environment outside of us and inside of us. And so I'm constantly checking myself to make sure that I am in alignment with my values, especially, especially if I'm emotional about something, right? Because I know that when I've been emotional about something, and I'm a very emotional person, I'm a cancer. And now, so for, you know, behaviors are like, what's all this bull astrology, blah, blah, blah. You can't believe in that stuff. I don't think there's anything mystical about astrology. I think that when you're in utero and you're being developed, something happens because of the gravitational pull. I mean, it moves oceans, right? And I just see patterns of like, I don't say I believe in like astrological, astrological readings or something, but there's something about patterns of behavior that seem to develop. And I'm just a very sensitive person. And I know that my sensitivities can change my, my behavior. And uh, sometimes it's great because it makes me go above and beyond for people. Sometimes it's not great because if I'm really upset or I feel anxious or I feel like I'm not treated well, I kind of make sure that when I, when I behave, I'm still behaving in ways that are in line with my values. So it's a constant check that I'm doing. And I think of myself, am I, I mean, all right, I'm in the bottom left-hand corner right now. What am I doing? So those thoughts and feelings and bodily sensations become a prompt for me to, to check myself, right? A reminder, what do you really value in this situation and what are you doing? And is that what you should be doing? Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it does make sense. And I'm, I'm thinking here about, about, you know, keeping everything that you've learned about yourself still in the moment when you're getting hit and you want to protect yourself. And so there's these, there's all of these conflicting kind of information coming in. And so since I focus on recruiting and I focus on trying to help people not to continue to get into the rut of being in a company that's, you know, not values aligned or, you know, kind of not valuing themselves, you know, and just trying to get out of something bad and and not thinking through the emotional state of getting in something good. And so what I'm wondering is 
what advice would you or have you given to people who are in that kind of, you know, emotional response to losing their job or being in a bad situation, but still not accepting going in and having like, a, I call it acceptance remorse, right? Where you mm -hmm. just take whatever. Yeah. It, it is really hard at the moment. I'm never going to say that it's easy. It's like carrying the monkey on your back. So I guess the, probably the best way to answer that is just to give it, it would it, it's always going to be consistency, right? You have to, you have to know what you value and you have to be consistent. You have to know the behaviors that you need to engage in that are going to move you towards those values and you have to stay the course. It's always going to be that because it's always going to come back to behavior and that is overt behavior, not just covert behavior. So here's what I think, or here's the example I'll give. Believe it or not, I've, I used to have massive fear of public speaking. Now you say everybody's got massive fear. I'm telling you that if you told me that I had to stand up and speak in front of five people, three months from now, every morning I'd wake up and I would feel anxious thinking about it every morning. And so, uh, of course, when, when, when presentations came up because I was working in a school district, I'd say, well, I don't want to do that, but I'll, I'll create the whole PowerPoint. I'll do all the research and do all this and that and the other. And I, I ended up feeling guilty about it. I felt that, you know, and I wasn't too in touch with my values at the time, but I knew something was off with it. What I've learned about myself is I love inspiring people. I love disseminating the science, especially through the science of human behavior. I love disseminating the science of human behavior. I love helping people learn about it. I love to help people help themselves through the science of human behavior and help other people. It's my people. It's my why. So I enjoy that. Now, eventually I had to, and this is before I understood what ACT was, I need to bite the bullet. And uh, of course, cognitive behavior therapists will say, change your thoughts to change your behavior. There's some good research to support that. And I've done that and it's worked. But the problem is when you get stuck on your thoughts, right? And that's like holding a ball underwater and that's when it becomes an issue. And so I need to focus on what behaviors I need to engage in to be successful because that's something else I wanted to do. I wanted to not look like a buffoon and be successful when I'm presenting. And so I had to learn how to public speak and I had to practice it and I had to become fluent in that stuff. And once I started engaging in the behaviors and I saw people looking at me, leaning forward, thinking, maybe smiling, maybe laughing a little bit and eventually coming up to me and saying that was a great talk or gosh, I never thought about things that way. Over time, those feelings of anxiety subsided and the, as I was getting in touch with some powerful reinforcement, now I get a little bit of anxiety, which I call it performance enhancing anxiety. Like if you tell me I have a talk coming up, I feel like, and I feel very confident that I'm going to crush it. I can't wait to go share this stuff. And so for the people that are experiencing that, it's really about fluency. And so I would say it's about, now I'm going to pull onto some stuff that's stepping out of ABA, but it's in the behavior science realm. And I could, I, I could it, totally explain it behavior analytically, but I'm not because it, that's going to make it longer, right? It's going to be a shortcut. So Albert Bandera talks about self-efficacy. Self-efficacy is your belief and your ability to accomplish a task. And that's, in the end, it's built from, you know, repetitive reinforcement through shaping, right? So I can just, just say that. So people aren't like, oh, you're not talking behavior analysis. It is. So I have to believe I can do that thing, whatever it is. And a lot of people don't have self-efficacy and like maybe being a good behavior analyst for whatever reason and that has an impact on what they believe, what, the kind of choices that they believe they have. You also have to have response efficacy. And that is, I believe that I can, I can engage in the task, but is it going to produce the outcome that I, 
the, 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 you know, the important outcome, right? I can, teachers can believe that they can use behavior specific praise and use opportunities to respond, for example, but is it going to have the outcome of reducing student behavior cha challenges and increasing on task behavior, for example, right? So that's got to be there. And of course, the third piece of this three part puzzle is that they got to value that outcome, right? That's got to, it's got to be a reinforcer to them. So they got to believe they can do it. They got to believe if they do, it, it's going to produce an outcome and they've got to value it. So people who I think get stuck on that side, they're missing this belief in themselves. And this is where I come back to the fighting. I say that I believe I can do anything, you know, now, and I believe that if the reason I went back to my doctor, for example, is because I saw another guy do it. I'm like, that guy can do it. I can do it. And I believe that with anybody. Guys, if I can, if you want your doctor, I'm not saying everybody's got to get their doctor and anybody's got to get the doctor. But believe me, if I can do it, you can do it. I'm not, there's nothing special about me. What I do is I'm consistent and I'm able to be consistent because of my history of fighting through adversity, right? And so these people who feel like nothing's ever going to happen, I don't feel that way. I know that I am going to make something happen. I don't care what's going on in the environment. I'm going to find a way to navigate this course and get better, right? Going back to doomsday than I was before. And so, uh, but it's not right away. Like the, when I was miserable working in a job many years ago, and I came home complaining to my wife about it, who was just, a, she's a wonderful woman and uh, was always very supportive. But one day she said to me, man, stop bitching. <laughs> and uh, of course I bitched some more about it. And I complained. I'm like, how could you talk to me that way? But after a couple of days, I'm like, you know what? She's right. I can accept it. I can try to change it. If not, I'm going to change myself and, and, and leave, right? Leave it. And that's it. eventually what I did. And it, it started like a really a 13 year journey for me, knowing kind of, I don't want to be here, not quite knowing where I wanted to be, but maybe having a, like, I knew I wanted to go North, right? figuratively, but you're not knowing exactly. And, but I just kept moving, right? Kept behaving, kept doing things. And eventually I started to narrow in and narrow and narrow in, but I needed to stay consistent and I need to believe in myself that I'm going to be able to do that. And that belief is shaped up over time, right? You have to, wherever you are right now, what do you need to do to take a next step to be a little closer to where you want to be? Do you have the knowledge? Do you have the skills? Do you have the resources? If you don't, what do you need to do to get those things? So at least you are moving in some direction. Does that all that make sense? Yeah. Um, a lot. <laughs> no, it was good. And I, I appreciate it. You gave such value to, I'm sure to the listeners with the, with the questions at the end there too, to try to figure out, because sometimes, you know, you're in that moment and, and you're like, man, you know, I'm just not able to do it. But, you know, having what, what I heard from you and correct me if I'm wrong is like having the foresight to believe and hope and know that this is not the end, this is a moment, but it doesn't mean it's the end of like the match, if you will, right? Like you just keep getting up. That Well, that that's it. And I'll tell you, I started to do some research with a good friend of mine. He's actually a mentor of mine, Dr. Alex Edmonds. He was my dissertation chair, just a great guy, brilliant, very kind and humble, he was a sports psychologist. And we started interviewing world champions in mixed martial arts about what, you know, how, how is that, what is it that he possessed that helps them to do things that, other people aren't able to, and it was coming back to their self-efficacy, their belief in their ability to engage in some move and produce the valued outcomes that they want, the response efficacy. And so that happened through thousands of trials, right? Of uh, being caught in an arm bar, for example, and I would say to 
a, a very famous fighter that I trained, Jeff Munson. And uh, Jeff, when he got caught in the arm bar, there was never doubt in his mind that he would get out of it. He knew he would get out of it. And therefore, he began engaging in behaviors. He relaxed and he worked his way out every time. And, you know, but again, that requires having the knowledge and the skills and the repetition, right? Building fluency in this stuff. And if you continue to produce valued outcomes, it, then you are going to be confident enough to continue pushing on. So, you know, you build confidence, right? It's not, you're not born with it. Confidence is a thing. It's, it's, it occurs through reinforcement and anybody can do it. You just have to be consistent. You have to choose, commit to the right behaviors, right? And then you also have to be able to see some outcomes that let you know you're moving in the right direction. Yeah, no, that's really powerful. And I like that you said re kind of relax, like you would relax in the whole. And I think that that, you know, kind of, I, I think visually, and so I'm picturing this, this guy in, in this situation, just kind of being like, all right, this is where I'm at now what? And, and, you know, I think being able to work through that fear that this is the end is, is not an easy thing, especially, you know, a lot of us probably, you know, suffer from anxiety. And so your mind can take over very, very easily. Do you have any tips for, for people who either like perseverate on something or know that it's not like the end, but they still have this voice that's so loud in their mind? Yeah. Yep. I get that a lot, man. You know, I've struggled in many areas. Like I almost have, I, I, it's going to come back to, and I don't, for lack of a better term, sound like a, a broken record. You got to be aware that you're stuck in those thoughts and you have to be aware that that is going to do you no good. You have to engage in some behaviors. You have to identify those. But I do, there are like little things I say to myself, like I mentioned earlier about the doomsday, you know, like that's me. Sometimes when I get up and talk, right, I, I have like my logo all around, uh, you know, my tattoos remind me of a fighter. I don't know if you can see, can you see, let me see if I can turn this. Can you see what's on that? Can you read that? Ah, I love that. Bad motherfucker. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. yeah. People don't know when I'm up getting a speech sometimes, I, I pop that up <laughs> and I see it. And it's a little reminder mm -hmm. myself that I'm going to be fine, you know, or whatever it is I'm doing, if I'm struggling in a relationship or have anxiety because something went wrong with some consulting gig or whatever, like whatever it is, I'm going to work through it because in the end, I know my values. I know that if I, people make mistakes and if I made a mistake, I'm going to own that mistake and I'm going to apologize for it. And if people aren't willing to accept my apology, that's okay for them, but it's also becomes more of a testament of their character, not mine, because I'm like, man, it's just so easy to apologize. But of course, change your behavior and once you do, because it's not just about apologizing, right? And so I, I use this kind of avatar of myself as a fighter, or, you know, this, you know, this, this vision of myself, of the things that I can do. And, and, uh, and, and I stay focused on that stuff. And I can tell you again, fluency, uh, the more you, when you break down longer term goals into smaller accomplishments, you can, you have measurable you have measurable, you have metrics that serve as feedback to let you know you are moving in the right direction. And that starts to strengthen your grit, right? And grit is just, again, being able to delay access to some sort of reinforcement over time, right? This is where people who are great are consistent in the absence of that immediate reinforcer, right? Because they understand the small little menial things that they're doing every day, the things that they don't like to do are, are in 
they're they're an investment in the greater good. And so that's some of the self-talk I have, right? Momentarily, where I'm like, why am I doing this? Or I feel bad about myself, or I feel like this is going on, or why are they doing that? Because stuff happens all the time. But I just get back on the horse and I keep going. And I'm not going to say that that feeling is not echoing off the back of my head sometimes, but I'm still going to get myself in the situation, not just sit around, just think about it, right? I'm going to engage in some sort of behavior. And so it's just still going to come back to that. You know, Polly, while you're talking, I'm I'm thinking about how you kind of have been referring to doomsday and kind of that, that imagery of yourself. And it's, and to me, it seems like you have this, this side of who you are that you're protecting, right? And that you almost see as like a, a separate thing that doesn't, it's immovable, right? Like you are doomsday. You have that capability of going back to that at any point in your mind to be, to see. And I think that that's so powerful. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So I, I do, I suffer from, from social anxiety and anxiety in general. And I have, I see a therapist who gave me advice that was like, why write a story that you don't want to read? You know, like, don't, don't write the outcome that you don't want to live. And so what, what I'm getting from you is that you, you have the, the end chapter kind of written out, you know, and you're just kind of going through and letting it write itself. And it's really beautiful. Well, that was very powerful what you just said. And I can tell you that having a vision of where you want to be one day, where you want to be, who you want to be, it's really important. And so many people don't know what that thing is. Mine evolved over, you know, the last 13 years, maybe 14 years now, actually. But I didn't know, but because it, it gives you some guidance, right? A path to walk. And at least you know that it's like going to school. Like some of my people go to school, they're like, they don't know what they want to be, but they're showing up for class, right? They know they want to be something with this stuff. And then their vision begins to shape up more and more and more. But it's important to know because a lot of people just go to school for the, because they think it's what they're supposed to do. And they get out like, what am I going to do with this degree? And they end up being miserable in their life. And so I've had to constantly reflect on, and it's, you know, tw- hindsight's twenty twenty. But when, if I go back and I think about what is it that, where my mind was always drift to and what did I feel good at? Because really it's, uh, you know, what, what was I good at? Cause it becomes, it's about niche and your passion, right? When you can get your niche to meet your passion, man, as it stands right now, I feel like I barely work. Although I do a lot of stuff. I feel good about it all the time. I feel so good. I feel good about doing this. It just feels great to me because I'm constantly in my niche and my passion. Now, I believe, and it's easier to easier said than done, that you should pursue your passion. And I say pursue your passion because you're pursuing your reinforcers, the things that, what you value, right? And you can build your niche, but that's going to take time. If you don't have the knowledge and skills to be successful, it doesn't matter how passionate you are about something, you still have to develop the knowledge and skills. And, and if, but if you're passionate about it, it's not going to feel so bad moving that direction. Eventually it's going to start having a big payoff for you. And for me, I still had to work my nine to five, but I was doing other things. I was doing writing on the side and I was coaching mixed martial arts, which was like a, really a laboratory. It was like a behavior analytic laboratory in there. Cause I was able to shape a lot of performance and you know, little by little. And I was, I was tired and I wasn't producing the outcome, but I was, producing short-term outcomes. I would see fighters get better. That felt good to me. Eventually they would win championships, right? I would, people would thank me, you know, they would smile at me. That felt wonderful. That's a value of mine, you know, being kind to people. 
when I was writing articles, man, somebody put a like on my article. I'm like, oh my gosh, man, they liked my article or they shared it. It felt so good to me. And that kept me going. And eventually I took all those little bits of pieces I put together and I, I made a book, but I was getting that little smaller reinforcers along the way in, in service to the, the big one, you know, the big sky in the pie reinforcer that began to develop further and further as I began to reflect on what I was doing. Now, what I, I was, I said at the beginning, I love disseminating in all sorts of fashions, public speaking. I love doing it from through writing. I do love doing it through my podcast. It just always feels so good. All of it. Yeah. I really enjoyed this conversation and it, it's interesting. You made me, you made me think about how difficult it is for, for people who are on their, their journey, whether they're just getting into college and they're trying to find themselves and they're going to continue to meet bullies or even in the workplace, right? You, you're thinking about somebody just starting out and not knowing about um, ABA or questioning what they're doing or questioning themselves, how important that feedback is to get throughout the time that they're doing. And of course, you know, you get it with your client and that's kind of how I fell into it is just feeling really good. Like, oh, okay, you know what? I, we speak the same language and they see me and I see them and that, that in itself is a win, but it's not easy. And so, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, Polly is like, what, what led you into, you know, behavior analysis? Like what reinforcements did you get kind of coming into that? Because so many people are struggling with wanting to stay in the field and I just want to be able to help them through you. Yeah, that's great, man. I, I, that's a good question. And gosh, I hope, I hope they don't leave the field. What I hope they do is pioneer some other areas. And so for me, when I was similar to you, I was seeing a therapist and the therapist helped me out a lot. I was struggling. I was bullied and you know, my, my first girlfriend dumped me in. I just didn't handle that very well. And I was in therapy for it. I mean, that's what started me for fighting. And what I realized was that one of my things that I was good at a niche and a passion, I wasn't calling it that back then is that I seem to be good at helping people. People would come to me and want me at my advice with things and it made me feel right. So my passion, meaning it's a value of mine. And so I ended up going into social work. And you don't go into social work because you want to make money. There's no money. People are going to social work. There's no money in that. I'm like, yeah, but I'm not, my parents always told me to pursue, pursue my passion. I'm grateful for that because that's what I did. And I got out. I remember my first job, I had gotten my master's degree. And by the way, I spent 10 years getting it in a, the program should have been a five-year program because it was an advanced standing program. That's and okay. yeah, but I was making $27,500. Uh, and I was making nothing and I had a house and I could barely put gas in my car or food on the table, but I was working with these kids who were duly diagnosed. They were like street kids who had got caught smoking pot and were having problems in schools. And I felt good about it. And I ended up working in, I, I would pick some of these kids up from an alternative school and the, they were looking for a, a therapist there. And apparently I made some impression when I was picking the kids up, they said, well, why don't you apply for the job? And I did, and I got it. And it was great. And so I was on my way, but I remember that we would sit around looking to diagnose people and I'm like, something doesn't feel right about this. And somebody came to me and said that there's this course they're teaching on behavior. And I thought at the time I was, I was actually trained in professional crisis management, which is the greatest crisis management system in the world. And uh, I say that in full transparency that I also work for PCMA, but it really is. 
but I was trained in it. And I thought, well, this is, you know, another behavior management course. They said, hey, you can make 50 bucks an hour to do it. And now I was making more money now for the school board, but I still didn't have a, a lot more. And I said, well, let me go ahead and check this course out. And man, it was before we had coursework at the university. It was under Dr. Stephen Stern, and it was the Behavior Analysis Inc. in Sunrise, Florida. And it was graduate level course work. And I remember showing up and thinking, oh my God, this is what I've kind of always thought was the way the world worked. And it just clicked with me so much. I, I just, man, this was everything. I kind of figured that, you know, let me continue with this. And I was always a slacker in school, although I got my grades and did fine. I would show up and just study for the test right before. I didn't, I didn't seem to care about, you know, re retention or anything. But in this case, man, I really wanted to be, learn this stuff. And I wanted to be number one in the class. And of course we were doing our staff meds and we were posting and I wanted to be number one on the thing. I'm a competitor, you know? And, uh, you know, when I got out of the, when I got out, I passed my BCABA and I ended up getting a job as a behavior analyst two years later when I moved to where I live now, Fort Pierce, Florida. And I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I'll be very honest. I knew nothing about what I was doing, how to practice this stuff. I wasn't surrounded by behavior analysts. They're like, well, we need, you know, you were being asked to essentially be a consultant and engage in FBAs and BIPs. And now I hadn't really completed one. I, I got the principles of behavior, but I had no fluency on this stuff. And so I'd go in and I'd write these plans and they were way too long. And I, I probably got the function right, you know, most of the time, maybe not, who knows, but they were just too long. I noticed the teachers weren't following them. And I ended up being the crisis management trainer in this area. And the, one of the schools that I was in was really struggling bad. I mean, there were, I do I write about this stuff in a couple of my books, but they were, it was a mess. I mean, the kids had taken over the school and the assistant superintendent had asked me if I'd want to, if I was willing to come out and help turn the school around the next year. And I thought to myself, hell no, <laughs> what am I going to do here? It is a mess. But even though I didn't believe in myself, I really did believe in the science. And so I said, yes. And I'd asked a, a colleague, I said, you know, this school has school-wide positive behavior support, which is a, you know, it's a, it's an evidence-based approach that, that has some good research that supports that, you know, this works in, in schools. But I'm like, I didn't see it anywhere, even though the people had been trained in it. I said, I kind of think we need school-wide positive behavior support for the, the teachers. Cause if you're going to bring out the best in the, the students, you've got to bring out the best in teachers and course up the chain. And somebody said, yes, there is something like that. It's called organizational behavior management and they handed me a book by Dr. Aubrey Daniels called Bringing Out the Best in People. And that's what got me on the path of saying that, well, man, really, as when I'm in these schools, I'm not to change learner behavior. You always have to change the adult behavior if you want any sustainability. And so that put me on the path to, you know, writing my sixth book now. I just had another one come out, Quick Wins, the second edition. And uh, it, this is where I like have hung my hat in this area. And I love it because it's really the, I talk about it all as the, in a very practical fashion that anybody can understand. And that's why I really love what Aubrey did. And I've taken that and, and, you know, of course applied it in lots of places in education with some really gangster people, you know, Nick Costa, Nick Welly, Manny Rodriguez, and, and more, Andrew Hooveris, Frank Krukowskis, Eric, Eric Gormley. So just a lot of good people I've co-authored these books with, but but I love OBM and uh, I've had a passion for creating environments where people want to work that brings out the best in them so they can bring out the best in the consumer. So that's what keeps me going. Yeah. 
the song goes through my head every time I hear OBM, which is the best of both worlds by Hannah Montana, OBM and ABA, you put that together and layered it on. And just what you said, just real quick, want to mention, I worked in the school district and I've seen PBS try to, to be, you know, implemented. And I think like the, the book that you and Nick Weatherly wrote together, I gave that as a gift to my sister-in-law, who's a teacher. I think that it's so so impactful to look at it the way that you guys do. And my question to you is when you're, because you just gave me a wealth of information, so I want to break it down a little bit. So, and when you're talking, you're talking about kind of bringing in the and training and kind of setting up the environment, I find myself in conversations that I would really love to share with you and get your input on because I think a lot of people are having these conversations and I think that you're the right person to to ask this to. So I have people who reach out to me who when I'm interviewing them, you know, for a BCBA position or they reach out to me on LinkedIn and ask, you know, am what I is what I'm doing ethical and, and I don't I don't know what are you doing? But they there seems to be kind of an overgeneralization of steering away from any sort of training and crisis management and it worries me. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. And so I wanted to get your input and education for them on, mm. on yeah. really understanding it. Yeah. Well, thank you for, uh, thank you for bringing that point up because it is extremely important. In fact, I have a, I'll put a whole new chapter in quick responses about the risk of not restraining. Cause you know, restraint has become a bad, bad word. And for good reason, people have overused it, you know, way too much used it. The problem is, I'm going to come back to, you know, why people need to be trained. There's a couple of things that you have to consider. When I went into school, that was just a mess and behavior was going everywhere. Like, well, you need to use antecedent strategies, prevention and positive reinforcement. Like that's all sounds great, right? But that environment is going to take some time to change to get the best out of the students because to get the best out of those 600 students, we've got to get the best out of those 60 teachers, you know what I mean? And the best out of those four administrators. And we got to make sure that we have a good system for them to operate on. That all takes time. And while that's taking time, it's not like the behavior is going away. The behavior is still there. These kids were fighting each other. You know, they were like calling off and like gang fights. It was like, it was a lot. So should we just allow that to occur? And I had, you know, six years old running off campus. Or do I just let them run out to the track? And so, you know, these folks probably have not, they're very well-meaning because they've seen people, again, overuse, misuse crisis management strategies. But what I would say is that not all crisis management is equal. I've been trained in three different crisis management systems and here's the problem, right? And so if you've been trained on this or anybody else that has not been trained in PCM, here's what you got. You probably went in there and the, the, after doing a couple reps, the, in just to sh- demonstrate that you're competent, right? Two or three times that you could do it, you know, without making error you are good to go. They will give you a certificate or your blue card or whatever it is and say, you're ready to go. But now (laughs) that is not fluency. If you're going to be fluent in anything, you need to be fluent in crisis management, right? As, as a field, I would argue that that's unethical, right? If you're not, if you're doing anything, that kind of training, people are going to forget what they learned the next day, the next week, certainly not, certainly the next month, right? They're not going to remember it. Cause I remember I was a trainer for those. And I would say, what are you guys doing? That's not what you're trained in, but remember that, you know, unless you train people to fluency, they're going to forget and they're going to rely on their own stuff and they're going to end up 
hurting themselves and hurting the students that they're trying to support, right? So that's number one. Number two, a lot of these crisis management systems do not, they might, some of them say that they're grounded in applied behavior analysis, but in, in that it, they have a bunch of prevention. But when you look at it, it's like, it starts at de-escalation, right? Good prevention, right? Like say PBIS has good prevention. We are very much aligned with that because it's, that's mostly grounded in applied behavior analysis and system, systems theory. And so you need to build fluency in these prevention strategies. And so, and, and de-escalation strategies as well, but a lot of these systems do not have prevention. They call it prevention, but it's not, it's de-escalation. It certainly might prevent crisis from occurring, but we don't want the students to de-escalate in the first place. And all this stuff should be grounded in applied behavior analysis, which PCM is. Now, people would say, well, you just shouldn't restrain. Okay, that's great. You know, let's talk about that because what would I have done as those kids were running off campus? Should I just not stop the student from running off campus? The five-year-old, what risk is that, right? Now, we have facilities that say, well, we are a hands-off facility, but here's not, what they're not saying. When they screen the, the, the learners, the, the consumers to see if they're right for them, if that consumer is engaging in behavior that's too intense for them to manage, they don't allow them to come in, right? So consumers are, are not getting the services. And I know this has happened. I'm very certain. I'm very aware that this is happening in lots of places. They're being denied services, which is very sad. And so the solution is not doing this. The solution is making sure that people are very well-trained. The solution is making sure that there's good organizational behavior management in these organizations, in these schools, to make sure that we're maintaining the training that occurs, right? That there, people are using positive reinforcement, that there's a good behavior management systems in place there that the crisis management system can complement. So all those pieces need, need to be in place. And you know, I, but, but fundamental to that, you got to have a good crisis management system that does have good prevention de-escalation and uses, you know, procedures that are not coercive, that are not, that use natural body positioning and that are use a positive reinforcement. For example, if I were to ask you, when do you release somebody or almost anybody that's listening to this episode, unless they're trained in PCM, whether, when they should release a student, for example, to say when they come, well, what does that mean when they come? What you think is calm is different than what I think is calm. But PCM, as soon as they begin calming within three seconds, this is why it's so brilliant what, what Neil Fleissig did with the system, you begin fading out the procedures. And so you, be, you end up communicating to that learner, that student through biofeedback that as soon as you begin to calm, we're going to begin releasing you. And if you start struggling again, we're going to fade back up, right? And so what we're, we're doing is we're shaping calming behavior. And it's a beautiful thing because you could be in the most restrictive procedure and be out within 12 seconds. We can get out of procedure inside of three seconds, right? If somebody's calming, you just, you can release it if you're at that level. Does that make sense? Did I, did I answer your question well enough or was there, there some things that I had left unsaid? Everything that you said did resonate with me and you said so many great things that I want to kind of unpack a little bit. So one is is the hands-off procedure. When I hear that, it worries me because we are, you know, our, the people that we work with, it's, it's unpredictable. And quite often we are in crisis. So, you know, I don't know if you know, but I do share, you know, I'm autistic and, and I can tell you that it can, there's a lot of triggers. There's a lot of histories in the, in the world. And, and, you know, you need to be able to keep people safe because 
there is a very strong flight or fight, you know, whatever you want to say. No, it's not. In That's fine. Yeah, terms. perfect. Like, like, whatever. Yeah. Like, and it's unsafe because you're in this mode where, like, I know I get in those modes and I'm able to communicate pretty well at this point. But I get in those modes where I, I can't keep myself safe sometimes. And so having somebody who's trained to be able to to help me de-escalate, you know, prior to or to be able to keep me safe in that moment is so important. Mm -hmm. And it, and I do find it, you know, also I, I agree with you on the unethical part and and the sad part in terms of people getting turned away or or worse, being accepted. And now you got people who are not trained and they're in an unsafe situation. Well, and they or, call the cops, you know, so they, they get yeah. mechanically restrained or they end up over-medicating them. So there yes. are lots of consequences to not having a good system in place and not having the system run effectively. You know, that's what we need to do. This What they're doing is band-aiding the issue with by saying not restrained, by not restraining. And people, by the way, also end up lying. They just don't report that re they're restraining, which is a whole other issue. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it, it's so important. And the medicine that you mentioned too, my, my, my son was pretty aggressive when he was younger and I, you know, I didn't have help. I made about $7,000 a year, didn't have health insurance or being able to get him the help he needed at the time. But I, but I was able, I was able to get into, you know, a, a state doctor gave him some medicine. And anyway, we we came home and he was on it and he like slow motion punched me. And I thought, man, uh, -uh I'd rather you real punch me because this is, this is not good because who, you know, it's all I'm doing is dulling your senses, but I'm not actually fixing the problem. And so it got, yeah. Like desensitizing medicine. him to punching. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, there's some people out there that they have, I forget what it's called, Rukuru or something like that. I, I don't know. Don't quote me on that. But like they're they're like trying to avoid immobilizing somebody by having them the hold up a pad and blocking yes. them out. Mm -hmm. Listen, it's I tried that many years ago when they were like I didn't want to restrain. I I felt like it was gonna be on the cover of the paper. Every time you put your hands on somebody, you need to think to yourself, what would I tell the judge, right? And so you better have good reason for it. And it's like, there's always something that could be different in the environment, but I can't control every variable in that environment. I just can't. And so I tried to, I tried blocking with a pad, but what I found very quickly was the kids started treating it like it was a martial arts kick pad or boxing yeah. pad, you know, it became a real powerful reinforcer for them. And eventually like, you know, you could push too hard or like to get around it, you know, like I'm a fighter. I'm not, I'm not afraid at all. I don't. I don't get angry. People get afraid in these situations, you know, they have real fear and they end up doing things that they shouldn't do because it, things become very unpredictable. When you're well-trained, well-trained in something, it gives you the sense of self-advocacy, right? So you know you can handle situations, but that, that comes from fluency. That's another kind of important side effect that, that happens when we train people well, which does not happen in these courses. And a lot of people are getting those courses because they're shorter, right? But why, why do I want to get a, a three-day or a four-day course when I can get a three-day course or or one, why not get a one-day course, uh, you know, instead of a two-day course? Well, you're not getting any fluency in this. What is the point? Do you just want a certificate or blue card to say you passed something or do you really want to, you know, give people the skills they need to prevent, de-escalate and immobilize somebody safely when the, when the time comes? And so, you know, that's what these organizations, these schools really need to ask themselves. Yeah. 
it's not just checking the box, you know, of when you're interviewing somebody and do you have the blue card? Yes or no. You know, when we're bringing in new people from organizations or whatever that we don't know, we still need to set them up for the training, you know, that, that we expect and, and check for, for where their skills are at. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I appreciate you said that it's kind of ironic timing, you know, the, with, I forgot what the name of it is too. I'll, I'll link it into the notes, but they're, they are using more pads and, I was speaking with a, an individual who is not trained in that, but that the company is using those pads. And I said, oh, my goodness. I said, have you been trained? They said, no. And I said, you know, I'm, I, you know, I don't want to, like, you know, come in between you and your, your workplace. But I would ask about that because I, I can't imagine that that's safe. And they and they did ask about that. And the response was, you don't need training. And that worries me for everybody. Well, that is, man, because they're also like, for so many reasons, like the prevention stuff. And that's why, and even the ones that are getting trained in all this other stuff, like you, you get something that's going to complement your system. If you're a behavior analyst, your training needs to be grounded in applied behavior analysis. That's it, right? And it needs to be fluency-based. And we are the only people in the world that do that. I, I hate to say it, you know, I mean, from a business standpoint, you know, it's great for PCMA, but I wish more people would use applied behavior analysis, real applied behavior analysis have real fluency built into what they're doing, but they're not, man. Their organization is just trying to make money at the expense of the consumer. Yeah. And, yeah. And the employees and it's bullshit because that's not, that's not how we're supposed to set people up for success. That's and right. It's, it's just unsafe. That's um, right. But I want to go back to what you said about, you know, people getting, not getting services. You know, most of the individuals I've worked with had severe aggression. I, you know, I, that's just who I tended to be gravitated towards because, you know, that was reinforcing for me is that I can help them, you know, not, not need to do that and keep themselves safe and give them a different way to get their needs met because that's what they're trying to do, right? Is have their needs met in some way. But I have, you know, individuals that, especially in the pandemic, that are kind of locked away because they can't get help. And they end up in, you know, a hospital because they're so severely aggressive or mm -hmm. older. You know, we need to do a better job of, of being able to help those individuals. Oh, you know, what I'm wondering is, is how do we meet the needs of the individuals that, that, you know, do communicate through aggression that, that typically will result in, in hold and whatnot. And, you know, how do we, how do we meet their needs? Because right now we're not. So I guess my question is, is it more training? Is it, you know, educating the the companies? Is it, you know, how do we, how do we go about even starting to shape that change? Well, so I, I mean, the great thing is we have the greatest, if you're a behavior analyst and you're listening to this, you have the greatest toolbox in the world. So we got to make sure people are trained in the right thing, right? For example, PCM, right? You got to be trained in the right thing. Or if you're not doing the, the physical stuff, we have every, they have every tool, it's still fluency based, right? You got to know the right thing to do. And then you have to have an environment, right, that ensures that people do it. And I believe this is organizational behavior management. And I, we have to have our leaders that understand. And I, I have an article on my LinkedIn. I can send it to you. It's, it's called, you know, OBM and Behavior Analytic Organizations. Where the hell are you? Mm -hmm. I'm like, we are, we are armed with the greatest science in the world, but we forget to use the science when we began focusing on other individuals, right, other behaviors, but the learners. We, you know, we know we're doing that because we're blaming people and, you know, we're, 
We're engaging in all sorts of other things and rather than thinking about what environment is maintaining their behavior. So I, I, I believe, you know, we, we can't certainly train everybody in organizational behavior management. It'd be wonderful if they did, because I think people should know how they're being lead. They should, and almost everybody is engaging in some sort of leading and management behavior. Cause when you're, you begin trying to get results through the behaviors of others, you are really in the realm of OBM, right? If you're not directly working with somebody and that's virtually everybody, right? Except for RBTs, but even RBTs are probably trying to help a parent out, for example. So they would benefit. So I really believe that people need to understand organizational behavior management. This is why, you know, I have quick wins and quick responses and deliberate coaching. All these books that are aimed at OBM and education are in the five scientific laws of life and leadership, you know, because I'm so passionate about systems and good leadership for running those, running those systems. Because if we don't have an environment that maintains performance, right, especially one that maintains a system that accelerates the delivery of positive reinforcement for value-added behavior, then you become a firefighter. You, you know, you're not, you're not engaging in good behavior analysis and you're going to get issues with retention and, you know, the consumer is going to be negatively impacted. And, the, you know, for, for business owners, the bottom line is negatively impacted. So, you know, particularly in our field, we already have the tools, I think, you know, because OBM is just applied behavior analysis. It's just looking at things just a little bit differently. I call it zooming out. And of course, in education, man, districts, district leaders, school leaders, and classroom leaders, they all need organizational behavior management as well because it's practical, it makes sense, and it works. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's a great place to kind of pivot a little bit. I know we're, we're ending pretty shortly. And so I'm going to ask you just two more questions. One question is, you know, if you had the attention of the whole world for just five minutes, you know, what advice would you want to focus on or share? You know, of course, I would, it would be something with the, about the science of human behavior. That would be it for sure. I think that, you know, maybe I would just, there's so much you can do with the science, right? I would, I think right now, if I had the attention of the, the whole world, we'd want to, give them a tool, if I could, that is practical, right? Something based in, in the science because complexity is the enemy of execution, sustainability, and scalability. And so I would introduce the whole world to the ACT matrix because there's so many mental health issues going on, but it doesn't just need to be used for mental health. It could be used for anything. It'd be used for goal setting, right? Have values-based goal. It helps people to live more of a quality of life by, by beginning by helping people to begin to figure out what, who and what's important to them, a way of being, and then what's showing up for them, what behaviors they engage in, and figuring out what they need to do. And so I think everybody needs to learn how to engage in these simple processes. And the ACT matrix, it's so visually appealing because it's simple. I believe they would they could embrace it anytime, anywhere. When, when Anika and I go out and give trainings, we've given trainings to hundreds of educational leaders in a room. And when we show them the ACT matrix, we don't even train fluency in it. And we'll go out to some of the schools afterwards. They're already doing it with their staff because they get their faculty and staff to they talk about what are our shared values, right? And what shows up for us and what behaviors do we engage in when that shows up? And is that aligned with our values? And what should we be doing? So it's really powerful. And uh, it's kind of like a Trojan horse for behavior analysis. Now, the way I speak about it, it's completely rooted in ABA. I don't know much about contextual behavior sciences or RFT, but I just keep it very, you know, simple. What are your stated reinforcers? You know, your values, you know, what covert behaviors show up, 
as precursors to overt behaviors that are escape motivated, right? Let's be aware that we're caught in a loop that's generated by negative reinforcement. And, you know, let's now engage in, let's now initiate and engage in some sort of behavior that we call a committed behavior. So that's our, our little self-behavior plan. Does, does that make sense? I, I know that's the second time I went over it, but I, I, no, I probably listen for the listeners. I hope that makes sense because I would probably put their eyes on that thing because everybody needs this because we are all struggling in one way or another. No, I think it's super impactful. And I, what I took from, from that and wrote down in circle was that it's a tool for listening and conversations almost like it breaks down. How do we, it opens up the conversations to really hear what's meaningful. It um, does. And it also, I think like politically, I see all this stuff where things are divisive. There's stuff going on online right now. And I don't, I don't love it in our own field. I'm like, let's start with our shared values. What's, what's important to us. Right. And we, people in our own field who are advocating for like positive approaches are engaging in coercives, trying to force their opinion on other people. I'm like, that's not the way to do it because it's divisive and it creates defensive responses and it creates counter control. And let's start with the things that we have in common, the things that are important to us that are common and work from there. And I think we would get so much further in, in all aspects of life if we, if we began from that, that, that piece of the puzzle. And also understand that we can't change everybody. There are some things that we just need to accept. So let's focus on what we can change. Yeah. And then, you know, before we, I ask you the last question, I just want to also bring back something that you said earlier, which is taking the time to change. So I think, you know, let's start the change and then let's also remember that it's not instant, but let's at least take that step forward. You know? Yeah. 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 So lastly, Polly, you know, our listeners want to support you and your work. And I'm sure many of them already have your books on their desk like I do. But for those who don't, how can they find you and, you know, get involved and contribute in your mission? Um, I'd love to hear it. Well, okay. So one, I, please connect with me at Instagram at Dr. Polly Gloves, DR Polly Gloves all together, um, or on LinkedIn. I'm pretty responsive if you guys have any questions. I'm going to drop a link in here. I, I bought the coolest thing, man. It's so cool. How do I do the chat here? I, if, if I can't Ooh. figure it out, there's a little conversation thing. I'm trying to, oh, everyone. Okay, there it is. I'm going to drop my L-I-N-Q. There's this cool thing that I had bought off of Amazon. It's 19 bucks and it's like, it's a card. So instead of carrying business cards all the time, it essentially brings you to, if I tap it to your phone or it has a QR code on the back and you tap it to your phone, it, it uploads all my stuff. And it's just, it becomes a landing page for all my stuff my bio, my LinkedIn, my Instagram, the stuff I just mentioned, all my books, all the PCMA stuff, if you're interested in some of the PCM stuff I talked about. So if you want to just drop that into the show notes, that will really guide people to really all my stuff. Will do. And again, Polly, thank you truly so much for your participation in this episode. And I'd love to have you on here again, too. Awesome. Great. Let me know. Yeah, for sure. Thanks so much. I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thank you. You too. This concludes today's episode of the WTF ABA Cares podcast, where we've explored the crucial theme of finding balance and perception to protect our mental and physical health, all while championing the principles of culture, advocacy, retention, employee relations, and systems. Remember to subscribe for more valuable insights into maintaining your overall well-being, all while making a positive impact in ABA and beyond. Thank you again for being part of our community.
Until our next episode, take care, prioritize both your mental and your physical health, and keep striving for that perfect balance.